Welcome to another episode of Dear Nina, Conversations About Friendship. I'm your host, Nina Badzen. On each episode, I welcome a different guest to help me get into the nitty gritty of friendship. On today's episode, I spoke to author Diana Speckler about a piece she wrote in her substack called How to Make Friends. It was a very refreshing take on making friends. And trust me, you guys, I have read everything there is to read about making friends. And I really found her piece different and enough so that I reached out to her and I said, will you please be on my show? She wrote in there about making friends after moving to Dallas in her 40s. We also talked about, and she talked about in her piece, some of the friendship deal breakers she has noticed about herself over the years. We each talked about our own quote-unquote deal breakers, which are really more about why two people might not click or ultimately why they might have limitations to how close they can get or how long the friendship will last. I brought up in my Facebook group, Dear Nina, the group, this idea of deal breakers. And a lot of people had different things that kind of tick them off when it comes to friendship. And it's just another way of showing no way is right. It's just about knowing yourself. Somebody in the group actually urged me instead of deal breakers to think of them more as limitations. And I really appreciated that word change, although I had already recorded my conversation with Diana. But just know that when Diana and I are talking about deal breakers, it's sort of a harsh word, but we don't mean there's something wrong with the other person. There are things she talked about that I talked about that we do that would bother other people. And she and I have a lot of differences in how we approach friendship. So there's no right or wrong, especially the older we get. Life is short. And knowing yourself and your own, again, I'd say limitations that might make it hard to ultimately get very close or have a very deep relationship with somebody. If you're paying attention to patterns maybe you've had or patterns of friendships that haven't worked out, you'll know what I mean when when we start talking. And Everybody comes at this differently, but I thought it was a great piece that Diana wrote, refreshingly honest, and I loved our conversation. Before we dive into that conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about Diana. Diana Speckler is the author of the novels, Who by Fire and Skinny, and of the New York Times opinion series, Going Off. She has written for The Guardian, GQ, Washington Post, Esquire, McSweeney's, Electric Literature, Harper's Travel and Leisure, and many other publications. She is also an eight-time Moth Story Slam winner and has been featured on the Moth Radio Hour, the Moth Podcast, and NPR. She teaches writing in the MFA program at Cedar Crest College. And check out her newsletter, Dispatches from the Road, on Substack about travel writing life. And it's also where you will find her essay, How to Make Friends. Hi, Diana. Welcome. Hi, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a perfect opportunity because we have been sort of friend adjacent for so many years and never actually met. And so this is perfect. I love that expression, friend adjacent, and I'm going to start using it immediately because it really describes like 80% of the people I know. We actually get a lot of opportunities in life from people who are friend adjacent. There's studies on that. There's research on that. Like your best friends don't usually recommend you for a job or introduce you to people. It's usually the next tier or many tiers down. And it's actually one of the things that I love about online life. We know so many people, which I think has pros and cons. And I say no in quotes. We know so many people. And I I actually really enjoy having all those connections. So let's talk about your piece, How to Make Friends. I think that the listeners need a little context for it. 
you referred in the beginning of the piece to three years in a row where you found yourself without solid in-person people to do stuff with. And why is that? Explain about your travel writing and all that. I'm a travel writer. I've been doing travel writing since about 2015. It gets really addictive, as you can imagine. So the couple of years leading up to the pandemic and then the first year of COVID, I was really adrift. At one point, I wasn't even living anywhere. And I say adrift, but but without the negative connotation. I mean, sometimes that was a really positive thing in my life and other times, you know, well, it has a dark side. But I was living in Mexico. I was kind of moving around to different parts of Mexico. I was renting apartments that were already furnished. I never owned furniture. I was just kind of drifting and going to assignments all over the world. And it was amazing. But, you know, everything's a trade off. We make choices. And when you make choices, you're choosing one thing and choosing not to have other things. One of the things I had inadvertently chosen not to have was local community. So I would sometimes really, really enjoy myself and feel really high on the travel and other times just feel like utter despair and loneliness. And those were my years leading up to moving to Dallas where I live now. And so what year did you move to Dallas? I just officially moved here last October. So I haven't even been here a year. So during that whole major year of lockdowns, which was really kind of more than a year, but you know, that intense year, were you in Mexico? I was in Austin. I had, yeah, I had a COVID boyfriend. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) Yeah. So the first year of COVID, I was living in Austin where he lived and was in a pod with him and his family. That was very lonely as well. Right. And at least at that time, we were all lonely. Then you moved to Dallas and you're like, okay, it's like real life again. You can maybe put down, I don't even know if I want to say roots because that might be too deep of, a you know, sounds more permanent, but at least community. I like how you use the word community because sometimes that can be an interchangeable word with friendship. Like you don't always need a best friend or a couple best friends. You just need a community of people to do things with. But before we even jump to the things you did to make new friends, because I loved a lot of your examples, I actually want to fast forward for a second to speak about deal breakers, because I think these are things that are it's important for people to know about themselves before they try to make new friends. There's no right answer. It's just what you like. It's no different than in a roman- romantic relationship. I don't think people realize often the connection between those two things. So you tell me a couple of yours. I'll tell you a couple of mine. Yeah. One of them is that I fall out of touch a lot and I need people who don't care. <laughs> so that's definitely one. I mean, it's a deal breaker only because if they don't accept that about me, we fall apart. And if they do accept that about me, we can be friends forever. I can't change it about myself. You're sort of saying, listen, this may be a deal breaker for you, the other person, but this is how it is. And I think that's good and honest. I talk to everybody in my head. So in my mind, I'm not really out of touch with people. Everybody's always with me in my mind. And so when I get back in touch after a long stretch, I don't want to feel awkward about it. I'm so excited that we're actually having a conversation. So to be greeted with iciness or, you know, I realize the person's angry with me. I mean, I can process their anger with them, but I can't really honestly apologize because I know I can't change it. I know I'm not going to change it. And so, yeah, I feel like the friendships that have 
dissolved in my life are often, it's often because of that. I'm hesitant even to talk about it, Nina, because I think Mm -hmm. I always worry that people aren't going to like me when I say these things, but it's just who I am. Listen, if you have friends in your life, and I know you do, people like you, but I have to remind myself all the time, not everyone has to like you. Yeah, And it's hard. It's like, that's a lot of therapy right there. (laughs) It's so much easier said than done. I am actually quite a pleaser. And this whole falling out of touch, that's an interesting one. I'm pretty good at keeping in touch, but I really appreciate a couple of friends in my life who don't live here, you know, so they're long distance. I frankly, even if they do live here, I do have some who do live here. We just don't see each other that much and we don't talk that often. And I still think we're really friends. I really do. But if you're greeted with bitterness, you didn't use that word. That's my word. I don't want to put a word in your mouth. That kind of feeling of, you you use the example of someone being like, hey, stranger, that's a subtle, not so subtle kind of bitterness. If that bitterness is going to stay, yeah, that's not going to work. Because why on either side, that's not fun for for anybody. So let's go to the next one. Yeah. So another is the walking on eggshells feeling. If I feel like I'm walking on eggshells, I don't last long in a relationship. I think it's probably common. I wrote in the essay that I just want to be listened to and considered and given the benefit of the doubt. Oftentimes we assume people are upset at us or we're upset at other people because of things we assume. It's all about assumptions. And if you just assume the best, oftentimes a lot of tension goes away. It just does. Absolutely. And I I think that my favorite friendships are with people around whom I feel like I can say anything. And they'll know that even if I say something they don't like, that's okay. Because sometimes people say things you don't like, and that's not that big of a deal, which is how I feel about people. I don't judge people for every single thing that comes out of their mouths. I'm not going to agree with everything they say. I might something might rub me the wrong way. That's all right with me though. I can move on from it. And I would just like others to give that courtesy to me as well. So I think we totally agree on the eggshells thing. And probably most people do in in theory, but some people just don't realize that they are creating an environment where somebody doesn't feel like they can be open. And that's what eggshells are. Your friend is very carefully treading. Okay, your next one, if you remember, was what? Clinginess. I have a hard time with clinginess. I actually think all of my friendship deal breakers sort of fall under the umbrella of just let me be free, (laughs) you know, because I guess I like to sort of float around in, in my life and I just want to be allowed to do that. So clinginess is very hard for me. How would you describe clinginess? Like what would be some examples of that? I can give a specific example because it was from so long ago. I know this person isn't going to hear. (laughs) Um, We love specific examples here. It's nice (laughs) because it's hard to always talk in generalities. Yeah, that's great. I had a roommate many years ago, back in in the days when we all had roommates. This is how long ago it was. We had one of those uh, kind of explosive falling in love friendships. You know, we met and were instantly just obsessed with each other. But then I started to make friends and she would give me the silent treatment and I wouldn't know why. And it would be because I was hanging out with other people. So that's an extreme example. But in a way, it was a formative example because then we were still roommates for an entire semester and it was such hell. It was like getting divorced and living in a room together. Well, an acrimonious divorce at that. I think 
that might be what really scared me off from clingy friends because it was traumatic, honestly. So that that is clingy, obviously. And then you said something that really hit me. I think I needed to hear it. You said you don't need every friend to be someone you can lean on in hard times. I thought that was really profound. And you may not realize how much so. A lot of times when I'm reacting to stuff, it's because I'm. it's not just about my own life. I'm reacting to all the letters I receive. And I've been doing this for like seven, eight years, not the podcast, but the column. And so I've seen and heard a lot. People are very disappointed in their friends. I have been too sometimes, not just in bad times, but in good times. So, I mean, I'm sure you've seen as a writer, not every friend shows up to buy your book. Not every friend shows up to go to a reading or to post about it on social media. I find with my podcast and with the writing before that, there are people who ask me about it all the time, even if they don't listen, they'll say, oh, how's it going? And I have very close friends who, I don't know if they would know the title of my podcast. They know I have one vaguely, but they don't really ask about it. I think that used to bother me more in the early writing days. I like this point, but not every friend is going to be the one who's good at that, both in the bad times or the good times. And as long as you have enough who do each one, they don't all need to do everything. Exactly. I think it's really nice to have a variety of people in my life who serve different purposes at different times. But the other thing is, I don't think I'm ever disappointed in a friend. What I am prone to is feeling suffocated, obviously, in this conversation, I think that's come out. So I am prone to feeling suffocated and will need to sometimes step back. But I I don't think I've ever been disappointed in a friend because I don't this is maybe going to sound bad. I just don't think I have a lot of expectations. I find that when I'm going through a hard time, for example, I think I could call almost anyone and say, I'm having a hard time. And I just think almost anyone who loves me will be more than happy to have a conversation with me. But I don't then need the person to, for example, check in on me every day. It's just some people do need that. I don't. I feel like if I need something, I'll reach out. In fact, when I'm going through a hard time, I sort of don't want to be checked in on. I I would rather just ask for what I need when I need it. And I think what that means is you are probably the kind of friend, and it's not a bad thing, you are probably giving the same that you are expecting, which is you're not going to be the person that checks on someone every day. I have a feeling if someone said to you, listen, for the next week, it would be really helpful if you just checked in every day, you would do it. You would put it in your calendar and you would be like, okay, I'm going to check on this friend, but it might not be your first instinct. And there's nothing wrong with that because you're also not expecting that. So sometimes we mirror, I have this with teasing. I am not a big teaser. And therefore I really don't like to be teased. I don't feel like I have to take it. Does that make sense? Like I don't dish it out. So therefore I feel I do not have to take it. Whereas if somebody's walking around like really always like kind of giving people crap, whatever, then you better be able to take it. But if you're not requiring, if your expectations are extremely reasonable, then it would be nice if people also had reasonable expectations of you. I think that is a rational way to approach friendship. It's when it's uneven that I think people kind of freak out. I totally agree. I mean, it's funny, the teasing example, I I find that really funny because I love being made fun of. I feel to me that's love. And so especially when somebody can really make fun of me for something, you know, just because they know me so well. And I don't know, part of that is probably just my family's like that. And 
to me, it just feels really intimate. It's a reminder that we all really do need different things. I mean, I, I love that, but don't need to be in touch with people all the time. And I think you're probably sort of the other way around. Yeah, that's probably true. And I don't mind a little teasing. What I can't stand is when it's just constant and you're like constantly on guard. I find it very unrelaxing. Sometimes I just want to like relax into my chair and not always be like, oh, do I have something funny to say back? It's tiring. But yeah, I think that my family, we're not teasers. And so my you know family of origin. So I think, yeah, when you're used to it, it, it does feel like love, right? A lot of guys also relate that way. And if you can't, keep up with that, or if you would be offended by it, I think it would be a lot harder to make friends. Okay. There was one more, a big one. This was my favorite one. I'm going to quote you. I'm going to tell you what you said for the final deal breaker. There's probably other ones. I probably have other ones too. And deal breaker seems like such a strong expression. I think we just mean preference, <laughs> what, what our preferences are. I really like that distinction. Yes. Preference is perfect. You said you do not like loyalty tests, and I could not agree more. I mean, I've written whole things. I've like written against the loyalty tests. And your exact words, I quoted it. I'm going to maybe even make a little Instagram quote out of this. We'll see. Friendship should usher in the fun, the light, the beauty. Nothing makes me happier than a room full of my friends laughing together, eating food I made for them. I'm not interested in testing anybody or in being tested. This goes back to this mirror thing I'm saying. Since you are not testing anybody, you expect to not be tested. I feel the same way. I do not test anyone. And I often will be like, go ahead and test me. I will probably fail. I'm curious, Nina. I know you've been with your husband for many, many years. Do you feel like you have similar requirements in that relationship to your friendship requirements? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, I think so. We are both very good communicators. When we were early, early dating, I mean, it might have been within the first month. He's four years older. We met when I was a senior in college and he was in graduate school. So he was like quite a bit. I, mean, I was young. I was 21 and he was 25 when we met. And at now when I think of a 25-year-old and we have cousins that age, I'm like, oh, they're babies. you know. But at the time, 25 seemed like a real man. And he'd had way more therapy than I'd had. He was much more like in touch with stuff. We were disagreeing about something. And I wasn't like a silent treatment kind of person. I was probably punishing in my own way, right? Like I was not being easy to talk to. I was probably giving like short answers, basically what my teens do. He said, you know, you just cut off the lines of communication. That's not going to work. It was like such a grown up thing to say. That really influenced me going forward with him and with friends to just not, I don't, I don't like that. I don't do that anymore. I don't do the punishing. I really can't tolerate the punishing. And he would never do that. If he was upset with me, he would just tell me. There's no hinting around and huffing around and slamming doors and crossing his arms. He'll just say. And he expects the same. And since then, since I was 21 years old. So I think that was, I never really thought about that till you asked that. But I think that's kind of where the loyalty test is a little similar to that. That's a little different than the silent treatment and the punishing. I had a friend once who was very disappointed that I didn't check in when she had a surgery. It was not a major, major surgery, but it was still surgery. I was very honest with her. And I said, listen, I'm not always great at remembering that stuff. I should have written it down. And then I remember. And she was like, well, I don't want you to have to write it down. You should just remember. And I was kind of like, unfortunately, that's not how my brain works. But I want to be here for you. But if I'm talking to you the day before your surgery and I haven't brought it up, I would expect that you would say, I'm kind of nervous for my surgery tomorrow. Don't test me. That's what a test is, right? If you're purposely not bringing up something you want to talk about because you're hoping the other person's going to like do their job to 
do the thing you wanted them to do. That's so silly. I have no tolerance for any of that. I just don't. I don't know. Maybe this would be asking too much of someone, but I think that conversation could have gone so well had she said it differently. Had she said, I find that I'm angry with you for this, but it's probably just that I'm nervous about my surgery and worried that I don't have the support I need. And it's sort of taken some responsibility as opposed to putting all of her surgery anxiety on you, one friend in her life. I think it could have been a more productive conversation that probably wouldn't have made you feel as defensive if she had phrased it differently. But you know, it's the muddying of human emotions. It's always it's always tricky knowing how to communicate and I don't know, but it but it's too bad because it can really put a nick in a relationship, I think, to accuse somebody of something, especially when they're trying to be a good friend and really doing their best. Yeah, and I like to look at the totality of a friendship. I like to encourage people to look at the totality. So maybe in this case, I'm wasn't the best at just remembering the exact date, but I'm such a good friend in so many other ways. And I try to give that to the next person. So, and when you said that, that's why that struck me too, about not every friend needs to be the friend you can lean on in all times. Like it's, as long as you have somebody, as long as you have a couple people. And, and in this case of the surgery, I was better about it in the future. Since I knew it was important to her, it taught me a lesson that, okay, this is important to my friend. She knows that I don't want to be tested. Just say to me, you know, here's one of those times I want you to write it down, whatever. And I'll, and I will, and then I will check it. I'm not going to stand on ceremony and be like, this isn't something I need. So it isn't something you should need. I appreciated that we were able to get there, but at first it was very jarring. It's not just testing, it's accusation in that case, which is very hard to take when you didn't do anything intentionally. I mean, okay, so what you failed to do hurt her feelings and and you can take some ownership of that. But it's, I don't know, it's it's pretty hard to be accused of something when you're not being given the benefit of the doubt. It goes back to the benefit of the doubt thing, I guess. Did something inspire you to say loyalty tests and your Substack piece? Did you have something in mind? Maybe it'd be too hard to talk about. I'm not sure that I did. It's just something that, you know, I, I guess... These are just all things that have come up for me in various ways through the years that I know I don't do well with. They're all like, to me, a little control pantsy things. And so I just know that I don't handle them well. In romantic relationships, though, I'm different. I do want loyalty and I do want a little smothering and I do want reassurance. All of this, just to bring it all back together, we brought all these points up. You brought them up in your Substack. You didn't actually make the line this direct, but it was obvious to me as the reader that now you're in a different stage of life. You're not drifting from one place in Mexico to the next. I mean, I know you're still traveling and writing, but I mean, you have a home base now in Dallas. And it was time to expand your community so that you had people to do stuff with. So you had in-town friends to hang out with. Knowing all these things about you, I think just makes that easier. But then you still have to go out and make friends. So what were some of the things you did? We will lead up to the literary salon just to give a spoiler alert. But there were some little steps you did. And then I really want to hear about the literary salon. Yeah. So I think one thing I did that I think is also my advice for your listeners is think about the kinds of people that you always click with. And for me, that's writers because... I'm a writer, we have something in common. And it's not just having the job in common or the the vocation in common. I think what makes a writer is 
a particular worldview or just a unique worldview, I should say. So I always click with writers. I meet them and it's instant friendship. I hear a lot about professional jealousy and jealousy among writers. I'm certainly not immune to that, but I do think that's secondary because what I mean, it's to me, the first layer is always positive. I'm always excited to meet and talk to writers. So I thought, all right, let me find the writers. I had been teaching for a while for writing workshops, Dallas, which are these, it's just these online writing classes for adults. And through that, I knew a lot of people from Dallas. No, I didn't know them because I'd never actually met them, but they had been my students. And so I reached out to them. I reached out to writers who I knew only through their bylines. And so that was my first move. And not everybody was interested. And and that was fine. I mean, I don't I didn't really mind. But most of them were. And so I have to say, like, think about the kinds of people that you normally click with and just send an email. I know that people think that they're going to come off creepy, but it's not creepy at all, actually. I mean, if, you know, if you say something creepy in the email, that's creepy. But <laughs> as long as you're just saying like, hey, I just moved to town. We have this thing in common. I would love to go have a drink. Most of the people I wrote to were like, yes, let's go have a drink. I think you could do that even if you're not new to town. That's one distinction I like to try to make for people when they, it's sometimes it's like you move somewhere new, therefore you need new friends. Sometimes you're just in a rut and you're just like, you know, I have more room in my life for more connection or you're feeling lonely for whatever reason. And like you said, they're not always interested. People don't always have time. It's always worth a try. I and mean, I love that you wrote about that and that you're suggesting it here because not enough people are willing to do that. It's hard. Sometimes just have to do the hard thing. But once you've done it, it's not so bad. I, I think it's a really good point that you you don't have to be new. Part of the reason I did it when I was new is I had all this kind of new city energy. I was so excited to get in my own apartment, not feel adrift. You know, I, I took so much care decorating my apartment, which I'd also never done before. And I just had all this energy and excitement. And so I think I was kind of cresting on that when I reached out to all these people. But it's true that you can do it anytime. And I actually, you know, when I, I lived in New York for a long time, and it's to me, it was really easy to meet friends. There was like almost any time I went out, I made friends because first of all, I just found so many like-minded people. But New York is just extremely social. No one's driving. Everyone's walking around or you know, on the train. We're all too close together. It's just a very intimate social place. And Dallas is less so. Dallas is spread out. In a sense, it's like a collection of suburbs. Everyone's in their cars all the time. It's different. So people were really excited that I reached out. I think a lot of people feel lonely here or don't feel like they have enough going on socially. So I would also say to your listeners, if you feel like you don't have enough going on socially, chances are a lot of people are feeling like that, especially since COVID. So you'd be surprised how welcome it is. And I know for some people, it's scary to send that email. For me, it wasn't scary. I'm an extrovert for one thing, but I think it's scarier maybe to do it in person. Sending an email, that feels low risk to me. You're also used to pitching editors exactly. all these years. And getting rejected and ignored. Yes, exactly. And then you just kind of go next. But you're right. I think an email is definitely a lower barrier than in person. Let's talk about the literary salon. 
what exactly is that? What does that mean? I love the word. I don't even know exactly what it is. Like, how is that different than a book club? Are there speakers? I'm just so curious. You and I were emailing a little bit about this episode, and I love how you said it was like fantasy football for literary people. So let's hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I actually don't know anything about fantasy football, so I cannot continue that analogy because I don't know what to say. But Diana, um, my son, I have an 18 year old son. He is in three different ones. My 10 year old son's in a few. My husband actually does not do anything with that, which is kind of different because everyone's husbands that I know does. But it's a whole thing and it does bring people together. So I, I do think it's an apt metaphor for just a group of people doing something that they have a shared interest in and seem super excited about it. Yeah, for sure. A salon is, I guess, historically, it's a writer inviting other writers over and sort of lecturing on a topic. I wanted to do something like that. I'm not interested in book clubs. I've never been interested in book clubs because I don't really like talking about a book with lots of people. If I want to talk about a book, I probably have a lot to say. So I'd rather just talk about it with one person <laughs> and not have to wait my turn. But the Literary Salon, I don't think that we're really doing it in accordance with the historical context. What it's turned out to be is just a bunch of writers or people who like to write. They come over to my apartment. I do it once a month. I choose a theme and I tell them in advance and they can write something on the theme. And then we all read aloud and give each other encouragement. If somebody wants feedback, they can ask for that, but that's not the default. And then we just sit around and drink wine and I put out food and we hang out and it's become this really precious monthly tradition. I'm totally fascinated. You're always the host. So does I'm anyone else ever host. offer, would you even want anyone to host? I would not want anyone else to host. To me, it's this is my thing. There is a literary community in Dallas and I love going to literary events in Dallas, but this is my thing and I'm just, I love it so much. So no, I wouldn't want anyone else to host. I feel proprietary over it. I get that. I would feel the same way. Okay, let's go back to the food for a second. So do you provide the food? I'm like real detail oriented. You provide the food all the time? Yes. And people are not paying. They're just coming? No, no. It's just, I mean, they're my friends. It's it's not a class. When I lived in New York, I did run writing classes in my apartment that people paid for. This is not that. This is just a gathering. I always provide the food. Sometimes people will show up with a bottle of wine and that's cool, but I always get tons of wine in advance. It's something that I like to give and be part of. Would you cap the number of people? Do people bring friends, like friends of friends? It always has worked out because, you know, I live in a studio. There's not a ton of space. At one point, I did buy a bunch of camping chairs because <laughs> I don't, you know, I have such a small space that I, I'm not going to buy all these chairs because I would just be tripping over them all the time. So I have camping chairs now that I keep in my closet and just pull out for this or, you know, if I have a dinner party or something, which is another thing I love to do that I would highly recommend to your listeners. If you want to get to know people better, I think like having a dinner party, and I think anything in your home is better than being out where it's loud and you feel a time crunch. So I guess, I don't know how many people, maybe 10 people that I invite. And sometimes people will say, someone will say, can I bring this person? It always shakes out to the perfect number of people. I don't know how that happens. So people became friends from it, right? Like you introduced people to each other just inadvertently by having them in the same space. 
Absolutely. And it's interesting how people have formed their own friendships. For example, there are people in the salon who live closer to each other than they live to me and they're good friends now. And yes, I mean, it's it's amazing. We have this great group energy and then also a lot of different one-on-one friendships. You've really done a service. I, I think that a really huge thing that could help people make friends actually is to start something on their own. I've done a whole episode, I think, with that title. It was like, start something. The other benefit of it is then you are helping other people make friends. It's not just so much about like your own social needs. And then it all probably evens out. There's like some good karma to that. You're helping others. People feel good about the friends they have due to you. I don't know. I love it. I love this idea. I wanted to ask you a final question, and then we're going to wrap it up. What was the reaction like to your Substack? Did it get a lot more attention than some of your others? Or was it about the same as your other ones? Or were people more eager to talk about this one at all? I do feel that it was one of the posts that generated the most conversation because I I think it really is fascinating to people. Friendship. It's complicated. I mean, there's so, you know, people feel they don't have enough friends or they are in conflict with their friends or they miss friends they don't have anymore or whatever. People have a lot of I think, sorrow around the idea of friendship, but there's also so much light and love and joy that we never give up on it. We're always hoping for more and deeper and better. And so, yeah, I I think everybody has a lot to say about it. I love reading the comments and, and I'm so glad you wrote about it so I could reconnect with you. And I just have always enjoyed your writing. I'm really grateful for you to come on here and and talk to us about it. I bet people are going to hear this and start something. It's such a tangible thing. It doesn't have to be a literary thing. I mean, whatever you're interested in. I mean, some people do like book clubs, but book clubs, that's not a new idea. This one feels like a lot more original and there's other original ideas out there. And often you just have to come up with them. And if you invite people to do stuff, they're so touched. People are so touched to be invited to do anything. There's a lot of potential out there. So Diana, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Nina. This was really fun. And thanks to all the listeners for being here. Come back in a few weeks. As I often say, when our friendships are going well, we are happier all around. See you soon. Bye.